You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. I'm Saul Ebem, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. And I'm Joe Newton. Welcome back, Joe. Yes, uh, I've done like four episodes without Joe, so it's really awesome to have Joe back with me in the studio here. And uh, our guest, Jose Hernandez, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, uh, Saul and and Joe. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. Could you give our listeners just a a little background, maybe introduce yourself so they can get a good context about you? Okay, so uh, New York City kid, grew up in the South Bronx. Uh, Somehow found my way to university, became an engineer. Uh, got married, had a couple of children, headed out to South Florida, where I thought, uh, you know, that would be my dream place, nice and warm, no winters. Uh, spent uh, about 20 years there, and uh, I live now in, in, in British Columbia, Canada. So, uh, yeah, a little bit, that's a little bit about my, my history in a, in a snapshot. My uh, grandmother on my father's side is First Nation. And uh, his father, as far as we know, is just European. So it's quite a mix there. My mother is French and uh, Spaniard. So uh, we have a lot of uh, European ancestry, but uh, my focus in the last uh, five or six years has been with the First Nation. Where I live here in Canada, I've been blessed to have been introduced into the community. Uh, The First Nation community has embraced me and... uh, so I'm learning about my culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I that I didn't learn in New York City and things like that. At that time, my father was really kind of like uh, ashamed of being First Nation. He thought it was like a negative thing, that it would, wasn't a good thing. And so he really kind of kept it quiet. So I'm beginning to explore my culture and uh, I'm just loving it. You know, I, I think it's... Uh, a beautiful thing to reconnect with uh, those that kind of had a, an impact on who we are. Mm-hmm. So what are you learning now that you didn't know um, growing up? Well, I mean, I'll share it really honest. I- I'm learning that uh, we're a lot more simple as well as complex than we believe. Hmm. You know, uh, life should be simple. Uh, and we, we have a knack of making it always so complex and difficult. And uh, uh, when, when, I, when I'm with the First Nation, it's, it's really about the land. It's really about the values are different. So the value, what's important is your family. What's important is that you have food. What's important is uh, simple things. You know, uh, we're not worried about four cars and two houses and and uh, which which was the way I was when I was uh, in New York City and in Florida, mm. very competitive, very uh, you know always trying to get up that ladder. And when you're trying to do that, you know you you're willing to knock other people down out the way, or you're hoping that they don't succeed so you could succeed. And everything is measured by that. And uh, you know, I mean, I'll just share it this way: when 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 I'm, when I'm in a sweat 
and there's 20 of us in there and you can't see a thing. Mm. There's a sense of equality. There's a sense of balance. Everybody's equal. Everybody's the same. You know, they're not bigger than you. They're not smaller than you. They're not, you know, uh, everything changes. And, and that balance equates when we go outside and we're in, in nature and we're with Mother Earth and, and things like that. And there's a sense of be, being humble. And I'll explain it to you like this. Uh, in the culture, water is the humble element because water always looks to go to the bottom first. It never fills anything from the top down. It always fills it from the bottom up. And water in, in our culture has touched every part of this planet. It knows everything about this planet. It knows everything. It knows us. So when I drink water from a faucet, all my ancestors drank from that water. Hmm. And uh, it just puts it right, right in the limelight. And I, everybody on this planet Earth has, has had that same water that I'm drinking. Hmm. So it speaks to oneness and how we should be more interconnected. And uh, in a world today where everything is so divided, yeah, I think that's really important. What could have caught? What what caused this for you to? seek this all this information and background because if as you said you were you were not like this years ago what brought on the change well i'll i'll i'll, I'll just start from the beginning when, when growing up i was uh, not a very religious man uh -huh. and the reason is that i was kind of caught up in between my father's culture where god is look out the window god is everywhere god is everything and uh, in his in his words, it would be creator. My mother, being a Catholic, God was in a church. You had to go and kneel to God. You had to be like uh, subservient in a way. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I was growing up in school, I decided that I didn't want to take either one of those two paths. And I started to kind of believe more in math and science and. Uh, that became my God. Mm -hmm. And then that allowed me to get into engineering and it, it made it simple that way. And uh, literally what happened was I was uh, out here in South Florida. I was working and I was up in a bucket truck and I was running some electrical lines. And uh, <laughs> it was the day before Thanksgiving. You guys know about Thanksgiving, right? Come on. Wednesday. So you got that four day weekend, you got Black Friday, everybody's kind of like, let's hurry up, let's hurry up. Yeah. We were running late. We were behind schedule. And uh, we decided that we might uh, save some time if I stay up in the bucket and, and we start maneuvering from one point to the next without me coming up and down. That was brilliant. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> Yeah. Doesn't sound yeah. real smart, though, Jose. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I mean, the, the the driver was so concerned about electrocuting me that he kind of hit the side of a tree, and I hit the bucket, and I broke all the ribs on my right side. And, oh uh, no! So it wasn't anything so like super melodramatic, like you got electrocuted or fried. But uh, anyway, I wind up in an emergency room. And they give me a medication. And uh, it gets difficult to breathe. Uh -huh. 
So I, I get home and I call the hospital and I say, hey guys, you know, I took that medication and it's, like, it's difficult to breathe. So they said, you know what? Don't worry about it. You're good, right? Hmm. It's your ribs are all broken. You're all taped up. You can't take a deep breath. So it feels like you can't breathe kind of like thing, right? Of course, I believe in medicine and all that. I said, okay, that, that makes sense. So I continued to take that medication. And what happened was I started to deteriorate very slowly. It wasn't like I had an anaphylactic shock and I just, boom. Uh, so my lungs started to get uh, tighter and tighter by January. Now I'm already sleeping on a sofa, sleeping, sitting down. I can't lay down. Uh, they don't understand what's going on. And uh, January 5th, I wind up, I, I, I said to my wife at the time, I said, I, I think I got to go to the hospital. I'm not feeling too good, right? Hmm. So they take me to the hospital and they do this uh, test where they put some kind of powder in your lungs to see where you're, where it's closed up and stuff, right? So it's kind of like uh, uh, some kind of uh, nuclear test. So it has some kind of radioactive isotope in it. And uh, they do that. And they decide that they're going to keep me in the hospital. So I get there around 11. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning now. So I said to my wife and my son at the time, I said, guys, go home. There's no need for you guys to be here. I'm going to be okay. You know, usually that guy, tough thing that we have, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I, I sent them home. And they went home. You know, and of course, in my mind, I don't expect anything to happen. You know, thing about life is that we, we get in a lot of situations where we get really close to, to the edge mm -hmm. and we always kind of find a way to get out of it and, and we're okay. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I'm thinking, ah, I'm going to be fine. So I remember the nurse, she comes in the room and she says to me, here's the button, you know, the emergency button. If you don't feel well, push the button and we'll, we'll come in. Anyway, she left the room and... Uh, over the door was a big clock, so I could see the time clearly. And I sit there for 45 minutes, and for 45 minutes, I'm telling myself, man, I should push this button, because I feel really messed up. And then I'm thinking, I'm a guy. I can't hmm. push this button. I, you know, that's gonna show that I'm weak, it's gonna show whatever, I'm gonna be fine anyway, right? Hmm. So I'm trying to convince myself that I'm gonna be all right. 45 minutes into it, I, I, I push the button. And then it takes about one minute for the nurse to come in the room. But I will say that was probably the longest moment of my life. That moment took forever. And when she, she opens the door, she just looked at me. She just turned to the side. She hit the cold blue on the wall. And... In my mind, I'm thinking, what did she just do? Hmm. And the next thing I know, the room is full of people. So there's a crash team in there now. And the first thing they do is they lift me up from the bed, they put the wood under me, a board, and they lay me on it. And uh, I have no idea what's going on. All I know is I can't breathe. And I'm gonna share with you what that felt like. The first thing that I felt emotionally was shame. And I'm gonna tell you why I felt shame. 
I was trying to hang on to the sheet mm. that they had on me. And I was so weak that I couldn't. They just peeled it off of me and stripped me down like nothing. I felt shame because I was so helpless. I couldn't stop it. So I can't imagine what people go through when they're in situations where they're being forced to do things they don't like. Made me have an understanding of what that was like. And uh, the next thing I know is I start thinking about my family and I start saying to myself, well, if anything happens, they're not gonna get here in time to see me. It's two o'clock in the morning, they, they're home. By the time they get contacted, they get here, it's going to be too late. I couldn't breathe. So couldn't. when you can't breathe, it's not about breathing in. It's about letting go of that, whatever's in there. So it, it, you can't do either. And that was a very strange feeling where I couldn't get air in or air out. And, and I'm thinking, I, I'm not going to see my family. And then I got this emotional knot right here. So right in my heart area, I got really tight. And I felt like I was falling. It was like I was free falling. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not going to see my, 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 my people again. I'll never see them again. And I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. I didn't get a chance to do anything. And it was a really emotional free fall. And I never felt that low or down in my life. Just knowing that, that that could be a possibility. Then I start thinking, well, I'm a guy. I could toss this out. I'm going to be okay, right? So that that's always underlying. That's that madness thing. And uh, I, I will tell you that my heart broke in that moment. And then there was this tremendous sense of fear that took over. And the fear comes and the fear is what's going to happen to me, okay? When I die, hmm. what happens when you die? Am I going to disappear? Am I going to go somewhere? And because I had no belief system, I had nowhere to hang my hat. There was nothing that I could say that I could say, here's something that I could hold on to, a belief. And my thought was just like, an engineer, electrical, I'm going to be turned off like a, like a light switch. So somebody's going to turn us, hit the switch and I'll be turned to nothing. And I just visualized just this blackness. And that was a frightful. And then I'm thinking, I want somebody to hold my hand. And I can't speak. I can't talk, but I wanted somebody to hold my hand. And uh, I could have grabbed a nurse's hand or a doctor's hand. There were a lot of people in the room. And then I'm thinking, of course, about my father. And uh, he and I, we had a crazy relationship, but I'm thinking, he's going to turn in his grave if I show these people that I'm afraid. And I couldn't do that. Hmm. So I told myself, I'm not going to show these people I'm scared. And I recall my body actually stiffened, and I did not reach out to hold somebody's hand. 
Next thing is I started asking myself about God. And I said to myself, what if God is real? What if God was real? And uh, I started saying, God, if you're real, and if you get me out of this situation, if you get me out of this mess, if I survive this, I will be a changed person. I'll be a better man, right? So I'm kind of negotiating. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be good. I'm going to do all these things, right? Yeah. And uh, I waited. And in, it only takes a few minutes to die from lack of oxygen. But it feels like a long time. A lot of things go through your mind. A lot of stuff happens. And uh, I waited. And it felt like I waited forever. Might have been 10 seconds. And then my heart started to get very erratic. You could feel that. It started getting like really crazy. And uh, I started telling myself, I knew you weren't real. What am I doing? The next thing I know is I could hear the IV drip and it sounded like water splashing on a tin roof, right? Mm. So when you go to an island or whatever, you can hear that tin roof, that splash, splash, splash. Mm. And I remember looking at the wallpaper and I could see the grain in the wallpaper. Now I'm terrified from one angle and now I'm curious what is going on. Then I start thinking about dying. And the next thing you know, you hear your heart beating and there's a monitor. So you hear that thing bah, beating really loud. And then all of a sudden I heard it just go like beep and I feel my heart stop. And uh, your brain, your mind is like, oh man, this just happened. And the thought is, I'm, I'm dead. And uh, the next thing that I do is I begin to tell myself something very important. So it, it was a process of letting go and accepting little by little, right? Mm. So I had to convince myself it was okay to die. So I told myself, Jose, it's okay to die. There's no shame. And I explained it to myself by telling myself this, I'm not quitting and I'm not giving up because that's how I grew up. We couldn't quit, we couldn't give up, right? And if we did, there was shame in that. So I wasn't quitting and I wasn't giving up, but I could not change the course of these events. I realized that. And then I said to myself, it's okay to die. Mm. And it's okay because my life has been so hard. It's been difficult. And there's always all these challenges and, and you know what? It's okay. The minute I said that, I'm looking at this door that's in front of me with this clock over it. And it's really bright. 
and I see a shadow. And that shadow just moves into the room. And it moves around everybody that's there and reaches out and touches me. And when that shadow touched me, I was feeling so good. I felt this tremendous sense of love and peace and calm. And then there was this warm breeze. And the, the weird thing is that I felt perfectly fine. I could breathe, I could do everything. I felt perfect. And this breeze is blowing and blowing. And I got this crazy long hair and I'm thinking, oh, my hair is just blowing in this wind. And uh, I feel like I'm lifting, like I'm being lifted. The next thing I know, I'm standing in the corner of the room and I'm looking at this crash team trying to save my life. And to answer your question, what changed me at this moment? The moment that I saw myself in that bed, and I, I said, that's me, and I'm dead. And then I asked myself this question. But if that's me, then who am I? Hmm. And at that point, I just heard a voice. And she said to me, visualize your body as if it was a car. And that car has like 5 million miles on it. And we can't fix this car anymore. So you have to say goodbye to your body. Now I just finished saying it's okay to die. And I'm like, wow, now I got to say goodbye to my body. But something magical happened. And what happened was my whole life, I had never been happy with who I had been. I was never good enough. I never was. When I look in the mirror, I never liked what I saw. I didn't like the, the person that I was. And for the first time in my life, I looked at my body and I loved who I had been. And I'm gonna tell you why. Because in that moment, I experienced so many beautiful things that my body had allowed me to experience. And the lessons is very simple. It's everything that I did every day. So right now, taking a, li a little breath of air, mm. you know, being able to see, to hear, to look at a tree. So I had all these experiences that I call benign experience. So the first experience was holding my little brother's hand. Somebody giving me a hug. Somebody gave me a little kiss. You know, feeling the breeze on my face, feeling the warm sun. And I realized that 99.9% .9 of my life I had missed it because mm. all I thought about was making more money, getting a better job, you know, climbing up this ladder. And I missed life. And life is happening every moment. And we have so many minutes in our lives and we don't look at it that way. And so I was feel I felt so humble in the presence of my body that had sacrificed itself for me. And that's how I look at it. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. 
It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleil Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Jose Hernandez. Uh, before the break in the story, uh, you are sharing um, where you were already dead, and you are looking at your body on the table, and you have to go say goodbye uh, to your body one last time. But then uh, an, an overwhelming sense of appreciation for that body came upon you before you could say goodbye. Continue from there. Yeah, thank you. So it, it's the first time that I could say I loved who I had been. You know, I was perfect. I never realized the perfection that we are until that moment. And uh, anyway, the voice says to me, we got to keep going. So I, I, I move with her. And I fall down this, what I would call a black hole. I'm still always looking at it like a scientist. From, so I fall in this black hole and I feel this ripping. I land. She says, we got to keep going. Another one, I fall through the black hole. I feel this ripping and tearing. That's the only uncomfortable moment of my experience of dying. Then I emerge in this ball of color. And when I emerge there, the first thing they tell me is that what I felt that ripping that I felt was all those moments of pain and sorrow and feelings that weren't good, couldn't move with me into this place. So I had to let them go. They had to peel them off of me. So you can only go there in a pure state. Hmm. And that means you can only take good memories and good stuff with happiness. And uh, anyway, I wind up in this, in floating in this ball of color. So if you imagine being inside a basketball right in the middle, and all around is all this color and it's moving and it's alive and it's talking to you. And I hear all these voices like uh, chatter, shh, millions of voices. And the color is either drawing me to it or I'm being, or I'm moving towards it. Hmm. Uh, next thing I know, I'm immersed in the color. And I realized that the color was as alive as I was. Hmm. And they had consciousness. They had spirit. And I felt what it was like to be all these colors. And I felt uh, they actually taught me how to draw. They said, here's a blueprint. Here's how you're going to paint. So the first thing I said, you're going to start with a black canvas. And you're going to start with a black canvas because in the blackness, in that what you think is empty, is all the ingredients to make everything you know. And the example was look in the sky at night. Anyway, I keep moving through the colors. And I come out. and. Uh, I'm in a, this beautiful forest, and I can see these mountains in the background. Now, for me, growing up in New York City and then living in Florida, where, where the, the mountains are like 12 feet tall, uh, it was really striking because I could see the clouds in the sky, and I could see the, the shadows they made on the mountains, and everything was so beautiful. Mm. And I could see all, a lot of animals just roaming around. And uh, first thing, I think about my kids. And I said, what's going to happen to my children? And the voice said to me not to worry. I could see them from there. Mm. And then the next thing was, I'm flying. 
And it said to me, that's normal here. Hmm. And I started on a journey. And uh, what happened was, you know, we talk about oneness and becoming one with things. And uh, everything that I approached, I became that. So if I got near a tree, I could feel the tree. And everything had a heart. Everything had a pulse. Everything was living. If I got near a stone, the same thing happened. I could feel the air, the sky. I, I became a bird. I became everything I got near. So my experience of oneness was very profound. Hmm. And I finally look at the mountain and I kind of decide, let me go up there and see what's going on. And this mountain has this beautiful snow top. And uh, I'm hovering over the mountain and I look to my right, I see the sun. And if I look to the left, there was this beautiful cove and like a U-shaped beach. And when I look back to the sun on the right, I can see the sun, like as I'm looking through a telescope, I can see the solar flares coming out of it. And it's just such a beautiful sight. And I can feel that warm air coming. Mm. And I'm thinking, even there, wow, I think this is what's giving me this buoyancy and this lift, this warm air, it's giving me this ability to fly. And then I look to the left again, and I see a man in the water, knee deep. And he's holding six children on his right in a, in a chain and a line and one child on his left. And I, I, I think, let me go look at, find out what that's about. So I go down and it's hard to gauge distance, but I'm, I'm going to guess about 10 or 15 feet away from this person. He turns around and that was my father. Hmm. And, uh, me and my dad had a really, really hard relationship. So he was very abusive. He drank a lot. And uh, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I became my mother's protector. And so me, he and I were always clashing. And we never, in his mind, being a man, you never said to someone, I love them. You don't hug them. You don't do none of that. So we never did none of that. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm here. I'm going to have this opportunity to make this peace with my father that I couldn't do in life, right? Mm. And when my father died, I had a lot of regret and a lot of pain associated with it because I had to disconnect them from life support five years earlier. And there was a lot of guilt because I felt like I quit for him. I didn't give him a chance to live. And uh, a lot of insanity was going to my mind. He was riddled with cancer, but... These, these thoughts were real. Yeah. And uh, because we never had an opportunity to talk and tell each other that we care about each other, I felt like I had lost that opportunity forever and there was a lot of guilt. So I'm looking at my dad and I could hear him in my head and he could hear me. And uh, make a long story short, we embrace. And what happened when we embraced is I became my father. I could feel his life. I lived his life in that instant. And I realized how difficult his life had been. And that he did care, that he did love us. And he just didn't know how to show it. And, uh, you know, his experience of life was very different from mine. Uh, his mother was murdered when he was one. So he wound up living with his grandfather because my, my grandfather, his father, 
we don't know if he raped his mother or not, but she was the cook and the maid in his house. And uh, so he was never welcomed in his home and never embraced. So he didn't have a father or a mother in many ways. Hmm. He, he just had his, his, his grandfather. And uh, so he didn't understand the love of a mother. He didn't understand none of that. There was a lot of envy in him. But we have this embrace. We have this, this awareness of how we care, how we love each other and all that. And I'm feeling a, this sense of forgiveness that I've never felt in my life. And it, it, it's a funny thing because we forgave each other. But the forgiveness I'm talking about is that I was able to forgive myself. Hmm. And when I forgave myself, it made it set me free. It, it just made me feel so free. Hmm. And uh, anyway, my dad looked at me at that moment. I said, you know what? You got to go back. And I'm looking at him like, are you kidding me? There's no way I'm going back. I like it here. He said, no, you don't understand. You have to go back. And I felt this tug in my chest, but kind of from my back. And the next day I know I'm in my body. And uh, I think I opened my eyes because they, they, they were doing the compressions and CPR. And the doctor just lifted her head. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm back with my father again. And we're having this debate. You got to go back. No, no, no. And then he looked at me and he said, let's make a deal. Now, my father was always making deals. <laughs> so I'm looking at him and I said, all right, let's hear what this deal is. And he just looked at me and he said to me, I promise that when your time comes, I will come and get you. Hmm. And that sounded so incredible. That was like the best deal that I could hear. And I looked at him and I just said, okay, that sounds like a good deal. And I just felt that tug again, back in my body. And the instant I'm back in my body, two things happened. First thing is I just said to myself, could I have been such a bad person that I just got kicked out of heaven? And then the next thing was I felt the isolation of being back in my body and being separate from everything. And anyway, my prognosis was, you're not going to get out of here alive. Take care of all your affairs. Uh, I was in uh, intensive care for six weeks. And I started to get better. And uh, what helped me a lot was the fact that I was able to escape to that ball of color whenever they hit a cold blue. They hit a cold blue, I'm in that ball of color. And I'm thinking these colors are healing me. They're helping me. They're, they're, they're they're alive. And anyway, about two weeks after they took the tubes out and, and, and they took me off for the intubation, I, I asked my cardiologist one day, I said, you know what? I think I went somewhere. My cardiologist just looked at me and said, heck no. You know, it was your brain. You had uh, DMT. Your brain is still alive for two minutes after your heart stops. And all these drugs were giving you to keep you, you know, try to get you to breathe and keep you alive. And anyway, 
it made me feel like that experience wasn't real. And I, I came out of the hospital after three months and I, I lost about 30 pounds so I could barely walk. And uh, they told me that I had a year and a half to live. And uh, about six months after I left hospital, I, I, I thought I was crazy because of that experience. So I went to see seek help and I started seeing mental health professionals and my body started to actually get better. Hmm. And uh, make a long story short, I saw a psychologist for five years. I embraced this experience one day sitting with a psychologist. And uh, she actually sat next to in the chair next to me and took my hand. And the minute she took my hand, I'm going to tell you guys, it was like I was dying in that bed again. And I was struggling with that issue. Should I hold somebody's hand? Because I'm afraid. Mm. And... I wept and I don't remember when was the last time that I had cried. I had been very little because we were taught never to cry. We had to be tough with guys, right? And uh, she saved my life. Now I know this woman probably doesn't know the impact that she had on my world. Because that was just such a simple thing, just took my hand. And uh, that was like 17, 18 years ago. So my lungs are better. I only have about 60% lung function, but I could do just about anything. So I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for the experience because it taught me what was valuable in life. Hmm. And what's valuable in life is all these moments that we live, that we we get to hear, we get to see, we get to touch, we get all these things. And, and you know, I, I look at it like when you look at, at a kid, you look at your kids and they love you and you can see the love in them. And, and all those moments that I had wasted, you know, somebody saying, let's, let's go have a meal together. Let's do something. Let's laugh. And, and, and I'm not missing life anymore. I'm not missing life. I, I appreciate every moment. I'm grateful for it. I know that a lot of us struggle and we have difficult lives, but I know where they are. I know where they are. And I know, I truly believe that just like me, all those moments of pain and anguish were stripped away. They couldn't move with them to where they are now. And uh, makes me feel good about living. Makes me feel good about life. It makes yeah. life worth it. Did you feel uh, like you were missing something because you didn't die? That you didn't yeah. have that? Because you look at the experience you had, and it was very, you know, incredible for you. And sometimes when people get that near-death experience, they feel cheated that they should have stayed there. Did you feel cheated? In the beginning, yes. I felt like I had been kicked out of heaven and I yeah. thought that it was because I was not a good being. Mm -hmm. That I didn't deserve to be there. I didn't deserve it. And then I realized that 
this life is so beautiful, so amazing. Despite the challenges, despite the hardship, despite all those moments, because we always get past them. And I, I learned that uh, there's just so much beauty here. This is as beautiful as there. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. The I'm glad to hear that. Is that. Yeah. Yeah. The only the difference is that I feel like I'm in this body, like I'm separate from everything. But through my experience in the sweats and, and, and trying to tap into my culture, mm-hmm. I, I've learned that this world is just like that world. This is the same place. We're we're we're, we're always kind of like in a in a in a state of being in, in on heaven and earth. Right. And I'm I'm, I'm just going to say it this way. I got stung by a bee when I was out of sweat, and I'm allergic to bees, and my thigh was swelling up. And there was an elder there, and kind of said, "Calm down." And I'm like, "I got to go. I don't have my EpiPen, whatever." Right. Anyway, he went. He picked these four leaves from a bush. Had me chew it. It got sticky. He said, put it on the beach thing. I put it on there. The swelling was gone in about a minute or two. I was actually able to do the sweat. And when I came out, he asked me, what did I learn? And I'm looking at him like a little lost. And I said, well, I think you're going to have to help me here. And the answer was, that bee made a path to lose his life here in you. That bush knew you were going to be here and it had to grow so I could take those four leaves. I had to be here. Everything that you see is not coincidental or by accident. There's something that knows everything. Uh And do you understand how everything is connected? And he made me realize that that sense of oneness is really here. Okay. Just our perspective of it. So. I hope that answers your question. It does. Uh, I find it very uh, enlightening. Let's put it that way. Uh, The second question I have for you is, are you ready for your dad to come and get you? Yes. Okay. I've been close to death several times because my lungs are still weak. So if I catch a cold, it usually winds up turning into pneumonia. I've been in hospital quite a few times and I've been really close. And there's a peace in me and a calm. And uh, I know that he will come for me. And uh, I'm not going to say I can't wait for that moment, <laughs> but I am very calm about it. I've, I've lost right. my fear of dying. I don't have that anymore. Mm. I got you, you spoke about um, uh, learning to paint in that time when you were dead um what was that all about did you ask to be taught how to pay? how did it happen and what do you remember from that and, and yes well i didn't ask it was just like i just felt like i was in school and i was very little and i was being taught how to paint and i'm when i came back from my experience I had this compulsion to paint. And now the struggle is I never painted in my life. So where do I even start? Mm. And then the idea is that these colors were alive and they were moving. How do I do that? Mm. And so it, it told me, it gave me a blueprint. So I look at it 
from a very simple perspective, you start with this black thing and then I got to paint in layers. And what it told me was very clear. When you paint in layers, you do what people do. We, we put these layers in front of us. We, we're, we don't want to show this because we're afraid. We, we don't want people to judge us, so we hide this. I, had, I fell in love and I got hurt, so I don't want to do that again. And it, it, it kind of explained it to me almost like from a living perspective. And how do I associate that to people? And then what happens is it told me to paint on, paint on a reflective surface. So when you paint on something reflective, you see yourself in it. So the idea is that when you paint, the idea is for that person to see themselves in it. Like I saw myself when I was dead. Mm. Now, who's who? And, and the issue is that's what's in there is you and your entire ancestral tree. And it takes you back to the beginning when everything's one. Mm. And when I'm here, I feel isolated. So the idea is to create that buffer. So the art is actually, I use it as a tool for, uh, to help people to find who they are, to understand who they are, to understand that the traumas that we experience in this world are only of this world, that they're not gonna migrate with us. And, uh, you know, to, to, to convince them in a way to make good memories, because that's the only thing we could take back. You know, uh, I didn't believe in God. I believe in God now. I believe in, in, in you know, my world just changed so much from, mm. from that skill. But, but I do believe that color is alive and that it's talking to us. I can't hear it here. But I explained that to myself very simply by saying, maybe that's why I like this painting and not that painting. Maybe that's why I want to paint my house this color. Mm. Uh, because there's a comfort in it. Yes. That, that it gives us. Your story is deeply rooted in um, masculinity. I mean, there's that where being a man meant so much. And I think that was a pressure from your father that turned into some sort of toxic masculinity. So how do you look at it now? Do you still feel like, you know, <laughs> you have to be tough to be a man? Or how did that right. experience change that belief? Right. Yeah. Remember, in, in his culture, Men are the life takers. So that means we hunt, we take care of our families, we protect them, we do all that. Uh, and, and then going up in the South Bronx and going up in a different environment. Now, remember, he can't speak English. He has to learn. So he's completely isolated. So he's teaching me how to survive, basically. And in the South Bronx, that came in handy because it's how most of us grow up, right? There's this tension. This this There's always this any moment anything could happen and uh so i grew up in that environment and i knew he did it for protective reasons but what i realized when i was dead was that i'm not only of my father mm. that i'm also of my mother and that i don't need to prove anything to anybody anymore you know we we, we we're always trying to prove things to people I could do this. I could do that. I'm better at this than you. Mm. And all that went away when I came back. I don't need to prove anything to anybody. It made me, I'm content with who I am. Mm. And I can't lift 200 pounds and that's okay. Mm. And, and I realized that a lot of the pressure that I was putting on myself was me. And I thought it was coming from external, you know, that I had to do this to show other people. I was such a guy. I was so tough and all that. 
And I realized that that's not what God puts us here for. You know, we're here to, to live and enjoy life and really to share what we have. There's an aspect of us that's very loving. And that's what we need to share with people. And I was in a different spectrum and, and my father was also lost. And I think men today are in that space where we need to prove who we are. We're always trying to be better. You know, when women are around, we're very different. We have to be more masculine. We have to be tougher. You know, there's a mindset that's not right. And I think that happens when we're little and I think it's not intentional. I think it's more, our parents are trying to help us to survive. And I think what happens is we get distorted because when you look at little kids interacting, it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, they're all playing the same things. They're okay, it's okay. It's only when we reach a certain age that we have to begin to make everything different. And- uh, But do we have to make everything different? That's the question. Do we have to make things different or can everybody be the same doing it the same way? I mean, that, that I would challenge you on because it's, it doesn't have to be that way in my mind. No, it doesn't. And I think that's why the world is where it is right now. Me too. We, 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 instead of sharing food, Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, somebody could have a thousand pairs of shoes and I look at it now and I say, you can only wear one pair of shoes at a time. <laughs> True. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you could have 400 pairs of pants, but you know what? There's a lot of people that don't have any. Maybe a hundred is enough. So my question is, when is enough enough? Mm -hmm. When does somebody feel like they have enough? And that's what I learned and what's valuable is those moments that we share, that we feel good, that we make somebody else smile, that we make somebody else feel good. And that makes you feel so much better. So I think the environment today is an environment where instead of growing food and sharing it, we grow it and then we wanna make as much money as we can from it. Mm. And we can't take a nickel with us. You can't take a penny with you. Nope. So share the food. You know, and, and I, I, I visualize and I'm very hopeful that one day the world will change and people will realize that we're not separate. We're really one. And if we work together, the world would be such a beautiful place, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, I, I've been to places where a person has 20 bedrooms in a house and there's only three people living there. And I think about it now and I say, what's the benefit of that? Mm. You know, and, and you could take and build yourself a home with three bedrooms or four bedrooms. There's only three of you <clears throat> and build 20 houses for people that don't have any. Uh -huh. And, and I, I'm just looking at it from a more holistic perspective. And I, I think we could unify as a people, you know, because we, we, when you're dead, color doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> Degrees don't mean a thing. Mm. Your pocketbook doesn't mean a thing. You know, the only thing that matters is your humanity and your spirit. And uh, I, I think that's what, what life is about. Thank you very much, Jose. Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a powerful story. What are your final thoughts? Well, 
I think that uh, the world is in a tough place, but I think we're <laughs> going to get through it. I think as human beings, we have the capacity to give. I look at it this way. The moment God made me or the creator made me, gave me a tank full of something, and that was the capacity to love. Mm. And then my job is to take that tank and empty it. And we become so afraid to be loving. We become so afraid to be who we really are because other people will judge us or other people will take advantage of us or whatever. We die with a lot of that tank still full or half full, three quarters full. Mm -hmm. And I learned that what makes life valuable is to leave that here. And uh, people like yourselves with your program the message you put out uh, is is really what life is. This is what life is about. It's about helping somebody. It's about holding somebody's hand when they're afraid. Amen. Wow. Amen. Thank you very much, brother. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you. Many blessings. Stay blessings safe. Too. Yeah. That was Jose Hernandez. Thank you very much for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.